Okay, if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you brought your own, would you grab it? If you don't, there should be some on your tables. Um, you can also look it up on your phone if you want. We're going to be in the book of Acts. There's no shame in using the table of contents if you need uh, to find the book of Acts there. It comes right after the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and the, gospel, or, or the book of Acts is actually written by Luke, who wrote one of the gospels. It's his sequel to the gospel, and it accounts the first 30 years of the Jesus movement. So Jesus ministered for about three years. He died on a Roman cross, and his followers claimed to have seen him risen from the grave, and they began the Jesus movement, which was at first called the way. And we talked about this last week as we introduced the Apostle Paul. It was the way within Judaism to find God because they believed Jesus to be the Messiah. It eventually became known as Christianity, and uh, the church began. And so we have here in the book of Acts the first 30 years that shows us what was happening in this very small, very Jewish, very powerless movement that ended up changing the world as we know it. And we sit here today, thousands upon thousands of miles away from where this began, 2,000 years later, all because of this first 30 years of the Jesus movement. So we're, we're looking at it, we're asking, what is going on here? And what we'll realize is that the Spirit of God came upon this group of people and gave them power that was not their own to proclaim that Jesus died and rose again and that that changes everything. And they were witnesses. They saw Jesus risen from the dead. They were witnesses of that. And then they became witnesses, meaning they went, starting in Jerusalem, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, witnessing to the fact that God sent his son into the world. He died on the cross for the sins of all humanity, and he rose from the grave, and he's living. The Savior, the Christ, the Messiah is alive, and therefore we have hope for a future. So we'll look at the very beginning of the Apostle Paul's ministry today. You could go back online. Ryan and I did a little panel discussion last week introducing who is the Apostle Paul. The first half of the book of Acts is, is really about the church in and around Jerusalem where Jesus lived and ministered and died and rose. And then the second half of the book of Acts, which we're just starting now, is when that movement spread out to the Gentiles, which are the non-Jewish nations and cultures and languages of the day. And that was really led by this man named Saul, who's also called Paul, okay? Here we go. So we are going to look here at the very beginning of his first missionary journey, starting in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, that's Saul, who's also the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas, and sent them off. Now, the very first thing that I, I want to just point out here is the way this works in the church. You see what they're doing? They were a worshiping community just like us, and they were praying and they were fasting, and the Spirit of God delivered to them this consensus that Paul and Barnabas were meant to be sent off. So there was a worshiping community, a church, 
who saw in Paul and Barnabas a calling from God. Everybody was in agreement. They laid hands on them, and they sent them off. You see this alertness to the Spirit of God? We need that. We need that in our lives as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room. We don't just do things because we think they're a good idea. We really need to be alert and aware of the Spirit of God's prompting in our life. He will give us direction. He will help us to make big decisions in life. Now, the other thing that's just really interesting about this church in Antioch is that, you'll see here, it was a, it was a diverse church. Uh, we have Paul, who's Jewish. We have Barnabas. Uh, we have Simeon, who was called Niger, and that's just a word meaning dark, so that means he was probably African, very, very dark skin. Lucius of Cyrene was also from Africa. Cyrene was a, was a North African town, so he had somehow made his way up to Antioch, which is about 100, 150 miles north of Jerusalem in modern-day Syria, and there was a thriving, diverse, multicultural church there, all worshiping Jesus, and we talked about this with Paul, right? Paul, one of Paul's Big attributes is he was a unifier, and he, and he had a great example of this in the church in Antioch. We long for this. We desire to be a multicultural, diverse, socioeconomically diverse church. You see that here. It says of Manian, he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who was the king, meaning this was a high-class socioeconomic individual, and he's worshiping with all these other people coming from different classes. So classless a group of people who don't see themselves as better than anyone else, and they're worshiping together. That's our dream. That's the dream of the church. Um, we pray for that. We long for that. We patiently wait for that. We invite all peoples in to worship Jesus with us, okay? And the first, and one of the, and the first thing we see here is that together they come to this consensus. Let's send Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to other nations, to other cultures, and they send them out. So look with me at verse 4. Where is the first place that they went? So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus was an island right in the Mediterranean, uh, not far from Antioch, and, and so they sail over there, and this isn't, wasn't like the Victoria Clipper. I mean, this is a dangerous sailing expedition to get to Cyprus, but they, they go, they cross the channel to Cyprus, Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, this was always the pattern that we see in the, in the book of Acts is that they would go into a town and they'd first find a Jewish community and in the synagogue, just like a Jewish church, they would go and they'd proclaim Jesus Christ. They'd start there and then they would work their way from there out to non-Jewish people. The reason they did this is Paul thought, my mission is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The Jewish people, of course, were anticipating and waiting for a Savior, a Messiah. They understood the Old Testament, and so they would go into a place, uh, first seeking to explain that the Messiah has come in Jesus, and then they would go and they would have to explain to the Greeks, this is what the Old Testament says, and this is who the Messiah is, and Jesus is that person. So this was always the pattern. And they had John to assist them. This is John Mark. So he actually wrote the Gospel of Mark. And we did a series in the Gospel of Mark about six months ago. We finished it, so you can go back and listen to that. So John Mark was on these missionary journeys, learning everything from Paul, and he penned one of the Gospels for us. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
This is one of the things I love about the Bible. If, if you struggle, and lots of people do, to know, is this, is this true? Did this th- do these things really happen? This is one of the reasons I think the Bible is true, and this happens again and again. Why would you create a story in which a false prophet, a magician, has almost the same name as Jesus of the Messiah? They call him Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. I don't think you'd make that up. It could be confusing to the readers of the New Testament. But we have here a false prophet, a Jewish man, who is a magician, meaning... And we'll see in a second that Paul will call him the son of the devil. He is probably getting power from evil spirits who are giving him a power to do magical acts, maybe even healing, maybe even prophecy, um, but real powerful acts. And it's because he is in the world of the occult. And Paul confronts him. This magician, verse 7, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, this is important to understand. So this Bar-Jesus, this magician, was probably employed by the proconsul, who was like the governor of Cyprus. So he was a wealthy, powerful, intelligent man who had been using Bar-Jesus, the magician, um, in his life. And Bar-Jesus was probably making quite a bit of money off of this arrangement. But Sergius Paulus hears about this Paul and this Barnabas who have been teaching in the synagogues, and he says, I want to hear what they have to say. Here we have a considerer. You might be like Sergius Paulus. You might have heard something about this Jesus or grown up in the church, but aren't really sure what you believe about him anymore. And look what Sergius Paulus does. He sought to hear the word of God. He didn't know what he was going to believe. He just sought the word of God. He wanted to consider, and that's one of the things here at Sedaris we're all about. Uh, Sedaris is actually one of the Latin roots of the word consider. We want to help people who seek to hear the word of God wrestle with and consider the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Sergius Paulus, a man of great intelligence, of power, of wealth, sought to hear the word of God. Verse 8. But Elmas, that's another name for the magician. That's actually the meaning of his name. Elmas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So Saul sees a man who is trying to turn a considerer away from God, away from the gospel, away from Jesus, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, and look what he says, looks intently at him. So he's not making a snap judgment. He's discerning the spirit of this man. He looks intently at them. If you ever spend time with young kids, they'll just look at you. And what are they doing? They're trying to decide if you're trustworthy. (laughs) He looks intently at him, and he comes to the conclusion, this man is consulting with the powers of evil. He's a son, not of Jesus, of the devil. He is an enemy of righteousness. He is full of deceit and villainy and probably greed, using his occult powers for gain. Will you not stop making crooked the paths, the straight paths of the Lord? There are many things in this world that are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord for those who are considering. And now behold, 
This is Paul speaking. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon Bargesus, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had happened, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, this is what always happens with the gospel. The gospel, if it's truly heard, if it's truly proclaimed, it does one of two things. It either turns people further away from the Lord, further away from his light, or turns them towards the light, towards understanding, towards belief in Jesus Christ. And we see this happening. It's sad. For bar Jesus, he doesn't receive the gospel, he doesn't believe, he gets blindness. Now we don't know what happens to him, we don't know how long this lasted, we pray, we can hope that maybe he came and reconsidered the gospel of Jesus, and maybe he too, maybe that's how we have his story, maybe when Luke was going around interviewing people to get a a, a right account of what happened, he said, look, this is what happened to me. And he came back and he said, but now I believe. We don't know. We hope, we pray. It is not a once and for all situation. God gives us many chances to come and hear and truly consider the good news of Jesus Christ. But for right now, all we know about him is he turns away, further away from the Lord, more into darkness and blindness. And Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, the governor, this powerful Roman official comes to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that's the first story we have. This is the first story we have about the Apostle Paul's mission to the Gentile world, to the, to the Greek world. And I wanted to read this one right before I read another story. This is a story about the occult, about magicians, about uh, evil spirits. And we have another story that's equally as dangerous that we're about to read, that is about people who love their religion too much. That they love their religion more than they love the gospel. They love their rules more than they love God himself, okay? So let's read that story now. And this story's a little bit longer, so we're going to read it fast. Um, You can follow along with me starting in verse 13. But I want to tee it up there, okay? These are equal but opposite errors that keep us from the love of God. Starting in verse 13. Here we go. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos. So they go back across the channel to the mainland to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they came to Persia, uh, Perga, in Pamphylia. And John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. This is like visiting Bellevue, Seattle, and Bellevue, Maine. I think there's a Bellevue in Maine. Okay, so same name, totally different areas, okay? And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, right? Because every time they go to a new place, they always go first to the Jews, uh, to the synagogue. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. I love this. This is like, Paul, first time, if you're a first time guest here at Sedaris, this would be like if I said, does anyone have a word of encouragement? <laughs> and you stood up and just rocked their world with a brand new, uh, do we have somebody? Do we have somebody here who stood up? Okay. <laughs> Whitney, bring the word of encouragement, sister. Okay. 
They stand up, and, and Paul, this is so classic Paul, he, he unapologetically proclaims to them a brand new worldview. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, original pastor, you know, have you ever, pastor hands? <laughs> Pastors are always, okay, original pastor hands right here. Okay, he says this, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom God testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now here's what Paul has done. He has given uh, the beginning of salvation history. Now, to the, to the Jewish people who were there, they would have understood all of that. He gives a, a summation of the Old Testament. And the prophecy of the Old Testament that was from the line, from the lineage of King David, who was a great king, the greatest of all the kings, will come a new king, a new Messiah, a savior to rescue God's people and bring in the fullness of all of God's promises. So, so he's taken them from the beginning of the nation of Israel to Jesus Christ, who Paul believes to be this long-awaited, promised Messiah, the Christ. Verse 24. Before his coming, that's Jesus' coming, John, John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he... No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been given or has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath in the synagogue, fulfilled them by condemning him. What he's saying here is people didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't understand that he was the Messiah. And in crucifying him, they've actually fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy and scriptures about him. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, that's the cross, and laid him in a tomb. Laid him in a tomb. So here we go. He's taken us from the very beginning of the chosen people of Israel, taken us all the way to the cross of Christ, and now Paul is going to make a shift. And you always know in Scripture, when you're reading Scripture, when you hear or see the word but, and it's usually but God, because God always is the one acting Verse 30, something amazing happened. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news. That's the gospel. 
that, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. As also it is written in the second psalm, and he quotes Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he applies that now to Jesus Christ and his relationship with God the Father. Now, this is so important here to understand. And Paul is going to go on through the rest of his sermon, and he's going to explain how it's truly the resurrection of Jesus that is the most important fact in all of God's plan. He goes through a thousand years of Jewish history, maybe more, in, in, in 13 verses, and then he'll spend another 12 verses just talking about the resurrection. That's how, that's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. And the reason why it is so important, look at, at verse 33 again. It says this, uh, verse 32 says, God promised, and then verse 33 says, and this he has fulfilled. He has fulfilled. It's already been fulfilled. It's not something we're waiting for. God has already fulfilled his promises by raising Jesus. This is so important to understand for what we'll talk about through the rest of the sermon is that when we hope in Jesus, we're not hoping in something that has yet to happen. Okay, We're not hoping in the hope of God's promises. We're not choosing to believe in Christian hope versus some other hope. We are believing in Christ's resurrection from the dead and therefore have hope for the future. Do you see that distinction? It's so important. I think many of us, and, and for much of my Christian life, I didn't understand that. I thought I was choosing to believe in Christian hope versus some other hope. That's not the way it works. Paul says, it has already been fulfilled. The promise of God has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He has already been raised from the dead. And so, if we believe that, it is the basis then for our ongoing hope that God will complete the work that he began in Jesus. It's very different, and we'll, we'll see more of that as we go along, okay? So, let me just finish reading the rest of Paul's sermon here. And, and you'll just hear again how he is saying all of this Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It has already happened. It's a fact. It's objective historical truth that Jesus Christ fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. So here he goes, verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, and then he quotes Isaiah 55, which is an Old Testament prophet, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, this is Psalm 16 that he's quoting, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now he applies it, that is Jesus. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He's saying that psalm did not speak of King David. It spoke of a king to come, which Paul believes to be Jesus. Verse 37. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See what he's saying? He's saying, you who are worshiping the law of Moses, who have made your religion and your rules the kings of your life, you aren't experiencing full freedom, and he knows it, and they're not. They're slaves to the law, and he's saying, Jesus, 
Everyone who believes in him will be freed from everything that the law of Moses cannot free you. Cannot free you. And Paul goes on and he explains, and I'll just paraphrase here. He says, don't do the same things that your forefathers did. Don't miss the boat here. Don't miss what God's doing. Don't fall into the same traps. And what happens is the next Sabbath day, after he's finished his sermon, more people come and listen. And then more people come and listen. Everyone wants to hear because they, they sense that something of power is in their midst. It's the Apostle Paul and Barnabas filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so here we have two stories, okay, that explain two forms of believing that do not leave people fully free and fully satisfied in this life. The first was occultism or spiritualism. The second is legalism, loving the law more than God himself, loving the rules. And Paul says, I've got something that'll free you from all the things that legalism won't free you from. I've got something that will free you from everything that occultism or spiritualism won't free you from. And, and if, you, if you'd understand a lot of these uh, quotations that Paul ma- makes and some that he makes in, in the remainder of his sermon that I didn't uh, read aloud, what you realize is Paul is, is doing two things. Uh, the first thing that he is doing is he is showing that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The second thing he's doing is showing that we have a moment now in history that has been a very similar moment repeated again and again and again, which is this, that the people of a land, the people of God, choose often to worship anything other than God. They'll find anything. It's called idolatry. They'll find anything other than God to worship because they're sick of waiting for God to show up. And so, so he quotes from these verses. So I'll just read one here. I think we have it up on the screen. It is from Isaiah 41, 42. He makes reference to this in his sermon. And I'll just read you part of this uh, prophecy from Isaiah. You can go back and read more of it if you'd like. Uh, the first half of 41 is all about the futility of idols. And he ends it by saying, Behold, this is verse 28 or 29, Behold, there are all, uh, they are all delusions, Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Speaking of carved images and idols that people of that day would worship. And then chapter 42 starts this way. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. This is God speaking. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And you see this pattern again and again and again in the Old Testament prophets saying, the world has come to worship idols and anything other than God, but God has chosen someone whom he has put his spirit into, whom will bring justice and everything that we hope and dream for to the nations. And Paul is saying, this has happened. Paul is saying, through Jesus, this prophecy has been fulfilled. Don't miss it. Don't miss it, he says. Now today we're no different. Today we are no different than ancient Israel or Israel during the time of Jesus. We, we have all believed in something. We have to believe in something. We all choose to believe in something because we cannot make it through the day without believing in something. And so what we do is we take things, sometimes things that are good things, and we lift them up 
to something they were never meant to be. So we make a good thing what I call an ism. We make a good thing an ism, okay? So spirituality is not bad. The life of the Christian understands that we live in a spiritual world. But if we worship the spirits of the world and make it spiritualism and think spiritualism will save us, even within the church of God, we've created an ism and we're worshiping the wrong thing. The law is not bad. The law was given to us by God to help us to know how we might live. But when we turn the law into an ism and we worship legalism, we've stopped worshiping God. Now, you see how this works? Actually, in these two stories, legalism and spiritualism, we have two ends of the spectrum, even within Christianity, that are unhealthy. In some forms of Christianity, we have moved so far away from objective truth and, and the law and God obeying God's commands that we just say everything is spiritual. We call ourselves Christians, but to us that just means being spiritual people. That somehow Christ is this cosmic spirit and, and we just need to understand and relate to the cosmic spirituality which is personified in Christ. That's a real strain within Christianity, just like it was within Judaism because Bar-Jesus was a Jewish false prophet. The other side is legalism. We have that within Christianity as well where we take the commands of the Bible and we make them more important than God himself and all we ever talk about or think about is, is following God's rules. And we miss grace and mercy and relationship and forgiveness. We miss out on all of it because we're so focused on following the law of Christ. That doesn't save anybody. Paul's very clear. We're saved by grace and grace alone. You see? So we even have this today. And in between all of that and outside all of that, are hundreds of other isms. In fact, I found a website this week with 242 isms that are in the world today. Do you know what an ism is? This is the way the dictionary describes an ism. An ism is a distinctive practice, system, or philosophy typically found in political ideology or artistic movement. It's very close, very kin to religion. Any ism can become a religion, a religion being something that you trust in for salvation. And everything that is raised to the level of ism has the danger of becoming what you trust in for salvation. Let me give you an illustration. I have a three-year-old son. His name is Grayson. He is amazing. He brings me joy and happiness and wonder, and my life would not be the same without him. And I love him so much, and I'm always on the edge of worshiping him. And turning him into an ism, Graysonism. And I say, if you don't love my son like I do, you're wrong. You've fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> I've turned him into an ism, and that happens all the time. Ice cream can become an ism. Do you know anybody that's worshiping ice creamism? Raise your hand if your favorite ice cream, we're going to do a little poll. Raise your hand if your favorite ice cream shop is Bluebird. Am I talking about? Anybody know who's into Bluebird? Very good. Two locations, I think. Salt and Straw, raise your hand. Who are my Salt and Straw people? Okay. Molly Moons? Oh, come on. Wallingford Proud. Okay. Frankie and Joe's? Oh, that's not ice cream? Well, I thought that was an ice cream shop. What is, what is Frankie and Joe's? 
Oh, excuse me, plant-based cream. <laughs> okay, you see how this happens? There's an ism just really creeping up there, like... I apologize, okay. See, ice cream is wonderful, it's great. It brings us joy and happiness and satisfaction. But if we think every problem can be solved by ice cream, and we eat ice cream every day of our life, maybe two or three times a day, we try to solve all of our problems by ice cream, we realize, right, in the end, it will leave us short. <laughs> short of joy and happiness and fulfillment as human beings. It's obvious, but we do this with all sorts of things. In our church, we have people who tend to be more liberal politically. We have people in our church who tend to be uh, more conservative. And there's nothing wrong with that. We can all live together, worship together, consider Jesus together, be the best of friends together. But when liberal tendencies turn into a worship of liberalism or conservative tendencies turn into the worship of conservatism, they become really unhealthy. And we see that in our world today, don't we? We feel the effects of that. And we need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying for ourselves, that we don't turn our political tendencies or affinities into isms. Uh, I heard Tim Timothy Keller talk about this. He says, um, politics have become ideologies, and we become ideologues. And he says, when something becomes an ideology, we stop listening to the other side because they cannot be right. And so instead of saying, yeah, you make some good points, yeah, I might disagree with you there, but I understand how you've come to that conclusion, instead of that, we, we say, unequivocally, there is no truth in the other side. And when we do that, we know we have made it an ideology. And where there's ideology, the grace of God is not found. As I said, there are many isms. Here are seven that I think we need to be aware of. The first, legalism and, and spiritualism, as we've just talked about. And that happens in Christianity. But legalism can happen outside of Christianity too in what we call moralism, meaning if everybody just did what was right, the world would be saved. Now, this is how every ism works. There are benefits, real benefits now to living according to these isms, but they always fail to deliver in the end. They always fail. So legalism, following rules is very helpful. Actually, following rules is very unifying, so it's very beneficial now, but in the end, it leads to anger and judgment and division. Spirituality, as I said, is essential, and there's benefits now of understanding that we live in a, in, a non, in a world that's not just physical, that there's a spiritual element. It's very good. But in the end, if we only seek the spiritual aspects of life, it'll let us down. Uh, for the last four weeks, before we started this Acts series, we talked about individualism and how individualism can be very good to understand our individual responsibility but in the end, it leaves us isolated and self-absorbed and rudderless to fulfill everything that life is about. Third, hedonism. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the highest good and that everything we seek in life should be related to that which brings us pleasure. You see the benefits now, 
But if all you ever do is seek out pleasure, in the end, it will leave you dry, unfulfilled. God created pleasure, but the worship of pleasure will not fulfill us. For capitalism, capitalism being private ownership and, and free markets governing our economies, this can lead to much good, and we've seen in America it leads to much good for many people. But in the end, it fails to deliver ultimate, lasting equality of happiness for all people. And so it's not that we don't choose capitalism over some other form of government. It's just that if we worship it as if it will save us and save our world, we are fools. It will not. We know that it will not. We've seen it. I think we've gotten as close to it as we could. But we know it's limited. On the other side of the spectrum, communism. This... This ideology teaches classless societies with no personal property, and it will lead to utopia. That's the promises of communism. And it is not without merit. It's not without merit. But in the end, we've seen how it falls short. Six, romanticism. This is following sentimental feelings wherever they lead as the way to fulfill life. Romantic I struggle with romanticism. It's one of the things... Uh, that really hurt me in my dating life. I had to get over romanticism to realize finding my perfect spouse wasn't going to save me. There was no such thing as a perfect woman. My wife Allie is about as close as you get to it, and she's not perfect. I, ha I have to die to the ideology of romanticism as the way to fulfill my life. So uh, my soulmate will save me. That is, that's not true. My dream job will save me. Well, if anybody's got their dream job, they realize... In the end, it will let you down. I mean, our society worships this idea of romanticism. Extreme home makeover. If I just had the perfect house, then all will be right in the world. The reality is no. But romanticism is thrown on us as an ism of our culture. And then finally, scientism. Science will save us. With enough time, money, energy, science will give us answers to all that we need, to all the problems of the world. It will save us. And if you don't think you're taught scientism, we're going to help you understand this. This is probably going to be our next Bigger, Better Conversation series that we do next fall. We do a Bigger, Better Conversation series every year to help us have bigger, better conversations in the city. We're probably going to do it on scientism just to explain and help us to see how much the ideology of scientism affects us. Now, science, scientism is a great example. Science is wonderful. It's great. It has brought us so much. So much life has come through the new technologies and advancements in science. And so loving science is not bad. But as soon as we say, make science an ism, and we say, science will save us, we're going to be left out to dry. Science has become for many a religion. It has its prophets, it has its dogma, it has its hierarchy, it has its sacred texts, and people worship it. But it will not, in the end, save you. A lot of benefits now, but it always falls short as a god. Okay, and so we see this again and again and again, and there's obviously bad isms that we know we don't want to be a part of, racism, sexism, classism, anti-Semitism, ageism, these are all isms, and what Susan Farr observes is she says each ism has the ability to control and destroy lives. And we get it with these really negative ones like racism. We get that. 
But every ism has that same potential. Isms seek power and they seek control. And we see that even in the text. Look with me at the end of uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 49. After Paul has come into the city, it says this, verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, this is the Jewish leaders, those who had power and control, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. What's going on? Why does Luke bring up the high-standing women of the society and the leading men? Because this is always what happens with isms. When an ism has risen to to the level of dominance in a culture, there will be people who are benefiting from the ism, and they will fight tooth and nail to keep out any new teaching that strips them of their power and control. If you do not believe this is true, then you are blinded to the fact of how powerful ideologies and isms can be. Why do you, why do you think Bar-Jesus the magician opposed Paul and Barnabas? He had much to lose, probably financially more than anything, if the proconsul chose Paul and Barnabas' vision of life over and against his one. You see that? You see how power and control, when they connect themselves to an ism, become so destructive and they keep and they make crooked the paths of God and they keep people from real life. You need to be very, very aware of this. Even in the church, we struggle with this. I love the teachings of John Calvin, but if I worship Calvinism, I'm in real danger of missing out on the better truth and unity that comes through Jesus Christ. And you can put this on top of any ism. What's your ism? What are you on the border of making a God? What ism is it for you? How do I know? How do I know what ism is is bordering on becoming more than it should be? This is how I know. If it comes up in conversation, if I feel deep in, in in the pit of me, this passion and this fire to defend the ism, I know that maybe it's got a control of me that it shouldn't. What's that thing if it comes up in conversation, you feel the passion coming out? And it's unhealthy, usually. It creates division. What is it? What do you like to sing songs about? What does your soul fill with and you love to sing songs about? My, my son Grayson borders on uh, Thomasinism. That's Thomas the Train. Every time a Thomas song comes on, he's filled, he loves to sing it out loud. We usually sing about what we love and what holds that place of trust within us. The other way is when I meet somebody with the same ism as me, they become an instant friend. So when I meet, when I, when I meet somebody who loves Jesus, I don't, I don't need to know anything else about them. They're a friend. I mean, I'll, I'll invite them into my home. But this can happen with other isms too, where you just meet somebody who believes in some ideology, some ism that you're passionate about, and immediately, you don't need to know anything else about them, they become your best friend. That's just one way to know what isms in your life have you maybe given too much authority, too much power. Now look at verse 39 again. It says, by Jesus, 
Everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by, it says the law of Moses, so you could just insert legalism. You can insert everything there. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by capitalism, by scientism. Jesus Christ promises to free that. Now, here's, here's what I want you to think about. What are you not being freed from in your ism? And why can Paul think about Jesus and be so confident that he will free you? And the answer is back to what I said at the beginning. Because our hope is not in what Jesusism might provide or Christian thinking might provide. Our hope is in a historical, objective fact of the resurrection, which is why Paul can say, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, and he did, he can free you from anything. Now, we don't know if that will be in this life or in the life to come, but Paul is so confident, again, not because of some ideal of Jesus, but the fact that in space-time history, Paul has seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Where every ism hopes on an idea, Paul hopes on a proven fact that has already happened a promise that has been already fulfilled by God in Christ. So you just, you, I hope you're starting to, you see how trusting Jesus is so different than trusting in ism? Very quickly, let me just say, this is a huge difference, trusting a risen person versus an unproven idea. But it's not the only difference that I think Paul is trying to draw out. And this, this last difference is so important. Most isms, in fact, I think, I think it's true, all isms promise something immediately. If we do it this way, immediately things will be better. Christian, Jesus, Jesus actually says the opposite. He predicts for his followers that in this life, now, you might face hardship and persecution, but in the end, you'll experience a resurrection like mine. You see how every other ism is short-term, immediate benefit, unproven, long-term fidelity. Jesus says, you might face hardships, just like me. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God came in the flesh. He lived a life of suffering and persecution and mockery, and he was ultimately executed on false charges. He says, that's the life. But in the end, God rose Jesus from the grave. And that's part of this decision that we have to make. Do we want to choose the immediacies of some ism, whether it's occultism or legalism, or do, do we want to choose the way, the life of Christ, which is patiently waiting on the better promises that were verified and exist because of the resurrection? That's really what the choice comes down to. If you're struggling to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, which is the backbone for Paul, of everything that he does, I hope that you come back and you continue to study and consider with us the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts will show you, it's like hopping into a DeLorean, or for those of you who are younger, a hot tub time machine, and going back to the future and seeing what happens to the people who know and have seen and touched the risen Jesus, to see how they act. That's what the book of Acts does for us. We get to go back and see 
if it's true by looking at the lives of those who claim to have witnessed it firsthand. And hopefully by, by seeing their lives, we too, by faith, will come to know that Jesus rose from the grave, that God's promises are fulfilled, and that we, because of that, have hope for the future. The resurrection of Jesus, my friends, is an objective fact. God proved it, that his promises are trustworthy. God is good. He will never let you down. Those who place their trust in him in the end will always experience the fullness of God's promises. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever heartache, whatever suffering, whatever doubt you're going through right now, in the end, God will deliver you to a life better than you could ever imagine. Trust in him. Love him. Give your heart to him. Make him your new song. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your love towards us, for the gospel of your son Jesus Christ, the good news that he has died for our sin and that you have raised him from the dead, proving that it is truly finished, that the way to life and justification, forgiveness is through Christ alone, by faith alone, and it lasts for all eternity, God. We pray that you give us freedom from all those things that we cannot find freedom from through the isms and ideologies that we follow in this world. That you'd give us a new and better person to trust in your son, Jesus. Help us to know, God, that it is true that he is your son and that he died for us and that he rose again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.